0: Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Sisterhood of the Bottomless Mimosa, episode 39, and we are a podcast that celebrates women and wine, and I'm super excited to introduce our next guest host, who is actually our first podcaster who has ever joined the podcast, other than our old host, CJ, Um, and... (laughs) So please join me in welcoming Jordan to the show today. Hi, Jordan. Hi, Melissa. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm um, super excited to have you. And Jordan is from a podcast called A Novel Adaptation. And somehow Jordan and I crossed paths in Seattle um in what was it December 2018? No, January. 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 January 2019, where the two of us ended up at a podcast convention called PodCon 2. And I RIP, by the way. <laughs> yeah, R I P. It was the one in well, I guess there was a second a one. Was the second, yeah. <laughs> there were <So> two. We, <laughs> we only to one and two, and it has since been sent to the graveyard. But I am a, feel like a total asshole because I unfortunately met Jordan and don't remember it. But to be fair, I met like three thousand people in two days.
1: That's <laughs> okay, like- she did have a table. Like she had a legit table set up, and her job was to meet people, and my job was just to go around and collect stickers. So I mean. <laughs> That's all I did.
0: (laughs) Well, okay. Well, so that brings me to what my first question was going to be: was Did you guys have a table, or were you the people that got to run around rampant and just have fun all day? Oh, I was. We were rampant runners everywhere. (laughs) I wanted to go to all the panels, and I
1: wanted to meet all the people. And your at your booth actually stuck out because um, you were giving away a book, and I was like, "Oh, book! (laughs) I want it." And it was, like, the uh, Bad Girls Throughout History by Anne Shen, and I was, like, writing down, and I shook your guys' hand, took a sticker, and I said, I better win this book. I did not win this book. Uh, but, <laughs> yeah, well, so that's how, and I went home, and then I downloaded it, because I love drinking, and I love strong women, and you guys were great, so. Awesome!
0: Um, Did I also meet your other co-host, M? Was she yes, there with you? you? did. Yes, she is uh,
1: the vibrant red hair with the glasses. Just a gorgeous woman.
0: Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So, like, just, I mean, I have a full episode that talked about my experience at PodCon, but just to reiterate and to let somebody else know who has also attended PodCon, um, that was the longest weekend (laughs) of my entire life, and... Um, I honestly like for, well, first of all, I'd never been to Seattle ever, so I was extremely excited to be going there in general. And I was like, Oh, how cool! I'm going to PodCon in Seattle, we're gonna explore the town, the city, it's gonna be awesome. Um, Before very minimal anything. exploration <laughs> took place <laughs> that weekend, partly because I guess for some reason I didn't really understand that I was going to be like working. Um (laughs) sitting inside a convention center for three
1: days straight.
0: Yeah. And it was like eight in the morning until eight o'clock at night. And then I remember at the very end of the day uh uh, that we had tabled, it was like seven o'clock. We were literally dying. Like we were we thought we were dying. And this group of people came up to us and they were holding pet rats. And at that moment we looked at each other and we're like, we're done. The Once
1: the rats, rats come
0: out, it's like, 7 no. o'clock at night, we're <laughs> pa- get the table, grab the shit, we're fucking out of here. Like, <laughs> we were just like, it was too much. Uh-uh. Um, but it was a really, really fun weekend. Really bummed out that they're not coming back because it's like one of the only podcast conventions that i could ever afford a table at <laughs> right
1: it, like you could go to podcast movement if you could afford to take five days off of work and go sit
0: oh and God. like four hundred dollars a day for a table it's some ridiculous amount of money yeah. um but yeah it was a really good time tell us a little bit about your podcast yeah, so A Novel Adaptation, it's
1: a podcast where my co-host and I, am. we read books and then watch their TV or uh, movie counterparts, and we kind of go through it and see, does it work? Does it not work? What makes it work? What doesn't? And we first started this just so we could shit on crappy adaptations, like that was our main goal, because we were just so angry, and we would sit and drink and talk about crappy adaptations anyway so like well let's record ourselves doing it that sounds like a great time <laughs> and then it turns out that there are shockingly great adaptations and some a few but some that are actually better than the book
0: no and way so that, yeah mm-hmm. are, are you comfortable sharing any of those
1: well there's one that's going to be coming out in a few weeks and uh it's call me by your name We uh, both agreed that the movie was way better than the book. I'm really trying to think of another one, but that was just a recent one. (laughs) There aren't many, but they exist. And that was one. (laughs) So, yeah. And then there there are a few that are, like, on the same level. Like, Princess Bride. Solid. You know, like, uh, uh, Perks of Being a Wallflower. Solid. Like, those are just, they may not be better, but they do fine. Cool. Well,
0: where can our listeners find your podcast?
1: Yep, so you can find us uh, wherever you get your podcast. So iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, um, yeah, anywhere of those if you want to follow us. We uh, we have a Facebook page that we just kind of announce our new episodes. They're bi-weekly releases. Um, so it's a novel adaptation on Facebook, a novel adaptation on Instagram, and then novel adaptation on Twitter. There is no A. So, yeah, but we're all there yep. and... We love to interact with people, so come argue with us. We'll be happy to.
0: Awesome. Okay. Well, not to you know plummet the conversation from high to low, but you mentioned you're on the East Coast in Detroit, and um, you know we we can't we gotta su- kind of bring to light the white elephant in the room that technically everybody in the United States is on quarantine right now, and. Um, life is pretty fucking weird. So I feel like it's kind of like at least worth mentioning for a little bit on the podcast that, you know, me and you are in lockdown on separate ends of the country. Curious to hear what your thoughts and perspectives are on the current situation in Detroit. Well,
1: uh, I'm thankful. Mostly I'm just thankful. Let me just put a blanket. Like nobody I know personally um, has been affected by COVID-19. So yay. Um, and I, back in October was living in a one bedroom apartment and I just bought a house in December. So I'm nice. really happy that I'm quarantined in my house. That is amazing. And not a, yeah. Thank you. So, uh, I'm quarantined in my house with my husband and not a one bedroom apartment because then we might kill each other. Um, but, uh, it's it's interesting. Uh I haven't worn jeans in about 4 weeks. <laughs> it's been yoga pants or no pants. Uh and uh I don't I don't know how to go back to uh, real life in jeans. No. What what do you expect me to do?
0: It's pretty wild. Like for instance, we just found out last night in Los Angeles that Starting so today is what Wednesday. So starting Friday, they're doing a mandatory uh, masking of literally everybody in. I don't know if it's just the Los Angeles area or California, but um, I had to literally call my mom and be like, "Ah, can you make me and Zach masks?" Because my boyfriend he is actually still working. He's not quarantined. He He has a pool and spa service in the Los Angeles area. So, um, you know, essential. Oh, yeah. I mean, those uh, rich Beverly Hills and Bel Air <laughs> women are demanding their pool services, mm-hmm. <laughs> especially now that they're all home lounging poolside. I know you have to have an upkeep, man. <laughs> yeah. So he's still, unfortunately, going out in the world every day. And I asked my mom, I'm like, I need you to make us some masks. He's going oh, to need to wear one every day now. Um, but, yeah, it's it's been pretty weird over here. Uh, like you had mentioned, I don't know anybody who's been immediately affected by it. i I do know I do have friends um, and acquaintances that know people that have been. so in a sense that's kind of hit pretty close to home. Um, but I mean feeling lucky, uh, I'm starting to get really crazy because <laughs> for instance, just like you mentioned with your house, I decided to go to my boyfriend's house who has a two-story, two-bedroom apartment so I've been living here for three weeks um which has been nice because there's more room but I mean it's pretty weird like my whole life you guys are still together you're surviving the relationship it's been hard sugarcoat it. There yeah. have been quite a few downs. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, you know, I think really like the biggest takeaway that I've realized this week specifically, I don't know why it's been this week. I think cause now I've gone into week four of Basically, my whole life being turned upside down, um, where it, like, really started to hit. Kind of on pins and needles to see what happens in terms of my career. Um, And then, Uh you know, I haven't seen friends or family in weeks, so... It's been strange, and you know, I'm a very social, outgoing person. I go out a lot, like restaurants, bars, see friends. Like, it's not normal for me to be locked down 24-7, so Mm -hmm. it's definitely weighing on me. And there's been quite a few blow-ups in the house over the past couple (laughs) of weeks, but you know what? We're we're acknowledging that this is life-changing, even if it's just temporarily, things literally just switched a flip overnight, and it's like, figure it out, adjust, manage it, get over it's, it, like... It's a trauma. Like,
1: just think about it, because it really is. Like, there's, there's the before and then something big and life-changing happened, and then, then there's going to be an after. So this is going to be, like... Yeah. Um, I, speaking of day jobs, like, I, I work at an ad agency, um, and our big client is Ford Motor Company. Oh, so... So we're going on as business as usual, but at the same time, like going, but where are we going to be in six months? Like, (laughs) where's Ford going to be? And where are we going to be? Because, uh, yeah. Yeah. So we're just going to pretend like, yeah, yeah, business as usual. Yeah, yeah, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's totally fine. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. and, And that's kind of, I think, like just all of these things, like even though for us in California, we're only on week four of, you know, mandatory stay at home policy, but I mean, I think like as each day passes and with the news, there's different information happening every day, but very grateful that everybody I know is safe and healthy and yes. just praying to God that that continues to move forward that direction.
1: Ditto. Yes, definitely. <sighs> Cheers to that. Cheers. Cheers to Cheers. health and like having a job. <laughs> like...
0: <laughs> For real. <sighs> well, on that note, since we're cheersing, what are you drinking? <laughs>
1: Oh, for me. Well, let me let me get a good sound bite here because I do need to refill. Nice, that's good. Um, I am drinking the A to Z Oregon Riesling from Ooh. 2019. I hear it's a good year. It's not 2020, so um, <laughs> yeah, it's
0: it's light, it's sweet, and um, I ain't complaining. Nice. Um, well, I have a very funny wine to present tonight. So I originally selected this wine Please. because it actually reminded me of the woman I'm about to cover, just the name of it. So it's called the Dreaming Tree and it's a Sauvignon Blanc from Sonoma County. It's pretty basic. It's just a cute little tree. Is um the Dave Matthews one. It's the yes! Dave Matthews one <laughs> So that's what I'm going to say, is literally I'm standing in Ralph's yesterday when I went to Ralph's risking my life for this bottle of wine, and I was like, oh, Dream Tree, (laughs) like, I've never had that one, and it's a, you know, it's not too expensive, not dirt cheap. I kind of think it's cute, and it the name of it, which I will get to in the next couple of minutes, reminded me of my woman. So I was like, I kind of like this. It kind of goes with the theme. And then I literally just grabbed it off the shelf, came home, never thought about it again. And then before we started recording, I grabbed the <laughs> bottle to crack it, and I was like, oh, I wonder what the back says. And I was like... An exciting collaboration between Dave Matthews and award-winning winemaker Sean McKenzie. The Dreaming Tree captures the spirit of California's wine country. And I'm thinking, Dave Matthews? I only know one Dave Matthews and he's a musician. (laughs) So I like, there's nothing on here that states like Dave Matthews yes. banned. So I like googled it and I was like, Dave Matthews banned wine. And then immediately the YouTube Dreaming Tree song came up, and I was like, wow, he even has a song called Dreaming Tree. No, I had no clue. Um, so yeah, does he know? Wine... I guess I'm gonna have to listen to that. <laughs> my wine tonight is a Dave Matthews wine called the Dreaming Tree. Had no idea he was in the wine industry. Had no idea he had a song called The Dreaming Tree. The only song of his I think I know is Crash Into Me, which was like one of my favorite songs in high school, which I later found out was completely 100% about sex. So <laughs> that's about <laughs> all of my knowledge on Dave Matthews Band. Um, have you had it before?
1: Yes, I have a uh, dreaming tree is uh is kind of a staple in my house uh, is it really? so you know, we've I, I've had it yeah oh yeah uh like it, it it comes it comes across my uh wine cellar my make my wine cellar in quote it's it's just a wine rack uh uh pretty frequently because you know it's not it's not terribly expensive like at least at my local grocery store, it's under ten dollars, yeah and it's decent. Soap's under $10, a decent, and I know it's good. Yo. What are you Agreed.
0: Gonna do? Yeah, that was my same thought process. Um, and I mean, it's good. Like, I, I I, feel like I can enjoy this. I mean, I'm almost halfway through the bottle, so it's been good enough so there far. There you go. <laughs> I just spilled part of my bottle. <laughs> Did you kick it over?
1: Do you need a minute to clean it up? It's okay. Collect your thoughts? No, it's a carpet. <laughs> It'll be fine. It's okay. I mean, let's take a moment of silence for that spilled <laughs> Gleasling, because that's like... Uh, it's just my computer bag, which won't see the light of day for another maybe five weeks, but my wine. My wine. It's okay. I have a... Just in case that ran out, I have a box of Franzia to my right. As, like, backup. I'm so, a
0: large supporter of the Franzia. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, when I went shopping and we were getting alcohol, mostly we had to go We had to go on a grocery run last week because we ran out of tequila and pop. Nice. Yeah, so that that's what made us have to go out. And while we were doing the alcohol run, I'm like, well, I'll take this bottle and this bottle, and I have to get boxed wine. I have to. This is something that's always going to be there for
0: me no matter what. That's what I need. All right. Well, I think we should get into it. I don't know how. I don't know how long has blown by, but I think I'm ready. I think I've had enough wine, and I'm ready to tell you about my lady. Get, give me your lady stuff. Your lady story. Your lady.
1: I want to hear about your lady.
0: (laughs) Okay. So I am always very excited about the women that I present, but more, even more excited about women that are new to me. And also, I'm assuming or thinking probably pretty new to everybody else who's listening. Um, so, just to dive right in. The woman I'm covering today is named Wilma Mankiller. With a name like that. She'll <laughs> start off by saying, there are no murders in this story. Oh, and, no, come on. And all men maintain safety throughout her life. Um, well, what a great name. <laughs> well, with a name like that, we can only thank the fact that she came from a culture that would derive a name like that. So, um, Wilma Mankiller is a Cherokee activist... And social worker who became the first woman elected to serve as principal chief of the Cherokee Nation in 1985. Okay, so badass. She's also like <laughs> just oh, cool.
1: Love her. Badass. And
0: mm-hmm. before I even get into her story, I feel like it's worth mentioning. I had never actually heard of Wilma before in my life. But somebody had mentioned to me that I should cover a Native American woman, because we haven't covered any yet at this time. And I'm embarrassed to admit that I didn't really know of a large list of Native American women outside of some very, you know, generalized group of women that we have learned about through our history or Disney Channel original movies.
1: Pocahontas and Sacagawea. (laughs) That's about it. Yep. Right? So oh, embarrassing.
0: I, it is very embarrassing. And so I did a deep dive on like Native American women throughout history that have, you know, made a mark on not only their own historical, like traditional cultures or just in the modern world, whatever I could find. I actually found quite a few and I went through the list. It was hard to select, but I came down to Wilma because. Based off of what I read on her story, she is quite possibly one of the strongest women on Earth that I've, like, read about today. She has gone through some of the most extreme hardship and has still managed to fucking kill it. And she has literally paved the way for... Not only just Native American women, but women in general to kind of look at all of her achievements throughout life and just be completely inspired to believe that they can do similar stuff, um, if not more in 2020 and beyond. So. Not only the fact that she's Native American, I mean, just what she's accomplished in general as a woman is unbelievable, and the fact that I've never heard of her, like, this is somebody that should have been in history books, or should be added in history books now, because she has done so much good for her own culture, but also just the world in general. And I'm not gonna lie, the story has ups, downs, ups, downs. (laughs) That's an all-women's story,
1: though, like...
0: (laughs) Yeah, Yeah.
1: but it's it's a good one. You can't, as a woman, make it into the history books without, like, (laughs) suffering a little bit. You have to suffer first, of course.
0: You really do. Um, All right, so I'm just going to dive in. So Wilma Pearl, man killer, was born in 1945 in the Hastings Indian Hospital in Tahlequah, Oklahoma, which I'm most likely saying that wrong. Um, Her father was Charlie Mankiller, and he was a full-blooded Cherokee whose grandfather was one of 16,000 Native American and African slaves who were ordered by President Andrew Jackson to walk from their homes in the southeast to a new Indian territory in Oklahoma in the 1830s. Fuck Andrew Jackson. Fuck you. Yeah. Um... And needless to say, the walkers that experienced this long journey from the southeast to Oklahoma experienced harsh weather, hunger, disease, and abuse from U.S. soldiers that coined the journey as the Trail of Tears, which led to the deaths of 4,000 of those walkers along the way.
1: You remember, that was just a sub-bullet in your history book. There was a Trail of
0: Tears thing, whatever, just keep going. (laughs) It was one line on your index card in the fourth grade when you needed to remember that in a test. Yeah. So Wilma's mother was named Irene Mankiller, and she was a descendant of Dutch and Irish immigrants who had settled to North Carolina in the 1800s. So to get this out of the way sooner than later... The surname man killer (laughs) in the Cherokee language, it actually refers to a traditional Cherokee military rank, which is similar to like captain or major. So man killer is kind of up there with saying like captain whoever, you know, so it's it's not a a horrible, disdainful, (laughs) direct attack on men. honorable, in fact, one might say. Yes, it's actually quite honorable. Um, And Wilma, of course, had her own Cherokee name, which was Aji Luzgi, probably, again, saying that wrong, Um, but that translated to flower. So Wilma grew up on her grandfather's allotment, which was called the Mankiller Flats, and it was located near Rocky Mountain, Oklahoma, and she had ten siblings, and the family lived in a super small house in extreme poverty, with no electricity and no plumbing. And we'll you think quarantine's
1: mother...
0: bad, <laughs> right? Oh my god! Oh my god! That is like that. Yep. Th- thank you for saying that. Perspective. <laughs> Major reality check. Oh, God. So, yeah, her mother used flower sacks to make clothes for the children. And the family would hunt fish. uh, They would maintain a vegetable garden. And they grew peanuts and strawberries that they sold for profit. Um, But even though Wilma's mother wasn't an actual Cherokee woman herself. She definitely took the time to immerse all of her children in the Cherokee heritage. And she had them attend tribal ceremonies, gatherings um, where the family elders taught the kids traditional stories. But when Wilma was 11 years old in 1955, the family ended up moving to San Francisco, California, which was really part of the Indian relocation act Uh, that moved Native American families to urban areas for a chance at a better life, better jobs, and better living conditions.
1: Oh, sure, sure, sure. The better life life. Got that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Mm. You've nailed it. Um, They agreed to go, obviously, being sold that marketing pitch. Um, (laughs) So they sold all of their belongings, and they took a train from Oklahoma to San Francisco, And though they were promised an apartment in the city, there were no apartments available when they got there. So they were housed in a filthy hotel in the Tenderloin District for several weeks. Now, I used to live in San Francisco for eight years, well-versed on the area. Even today, in 2020, the Tenderloin District is, if not the most or one of the top two most hideous places to live in san francisco it's still hasn't been gentrified huh (laughs) i mean i don't think they can it is (laughs) littered with gangs drugs prostitution like like people get robbed walking down the street so it's actually funny because it's not funny at all but they're (laughs) within the tenderloin Right, Like, right outside the Tenderloin is a street called Polk. And it's a street where tons of bars and clubs live. Mm. And lots of people go to party. And it's mm. not a bad area. However, <laughs> when you're on Polk Street, and if you're partying there, the chances of not getting mugged while you're waiting for a cab are very slim. Yep. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, usually as the modern-day folk is getting drunk on Polk Street. They either end up getting mugged when they're leaving or they see things they wish they never saw. So, I mean, that was my experience the entire time I lived there. (laughs) (laughs) So, (laughs) I've never been mugged. I've had friends that were mugged right outside Polk (laughs) in Tenderloin. So, yeah, I mean, that was, what, 1955? That was, I mean, it's still a bad, shitty place today. So, yeah, it was not good. It was not good at all. Um, But uh, later, they ended up relocating to a better neighborhood in Potrero Hill, but they still continued to struggle financially, even though her father and brother were able to find work. Um, But there were very few Native American people, families in Potrero Hill neighborhood, and the kids were teased at school because of their potato sack clothing. And because they all had accents. So the kids, kids the Mar- kids. you know, the California kids thought they had funny voices. Yep. Um, within a year, the family moved a third time to Daly City, which is right outside San Francisco. And then a fourth time back into the city to Hunter's Point, which honestly, if there's a worse place than the Tenderloin, it is Hunter's Point. Um, and so there is it a worse is, place. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's between the two. Um, but at that time, which is still pretty much the same today, it's riddled with crime, drugs, and gangs. So it wasn't good for them when they arrived in San Francisco. Um, so needless to say, Wilma was incredibly isolated, Very lonely and basically had her entire life ripped out from what's under her going from, you know, Oklahoma, living on the man killer flats, living with, you know, her traditional elders, telling stories to like crime ridden San Francisco urban city with just garbage surrounding them. Um, Not good. So she decided to become involved with the San Francisco Indian Center. Go Wilma. So after she graduated high school in 1963, she met some dude named Hector Hugo Alaya de Bardi, and he was an Ecuadorian college student that came from a well-to-do family, and the two of them began, began dating. She found him super sophisticated, and despite her parents' discomfort with the relationship, the two of them married in Reno, Nevada, when Wilma was only 17 years old. The couple would later go on to have two kids together, girls named Felicia and Gina. Wait, wait, so wait. What was the
1: first name? Felicia and Gina. Oh, of course it was. <laughs> I'm still living in 2017,
0: so. <laughs> right. That's right. Yep. Um, so at this time, Hector was going to school at San Francisco State University, where I went to college. pew, pew. pew. <laughs> Um home animal? of the fighting Alligator the Gators. The gators. the gators. Yeah! In San Francisco! <laughs> so many Gators! Gator Town. In San Francisco. <laughs> Why? No idea. We don't even have a football team. Like oh. it was weird. It's <laughs> weird. Um, so yeah, he was at SF State and Wilma was busy raising their daughters. And, of course, Hector saw his role as the family's provider, leaving his wife at home to bring up the children. But Wilma wasn't completely sold on this plan. So yeah. she returned to school, and she enrolled in classes at Skyline Junior College. And for the first time in her life, she actually enjoyed school, and she only took classes that interest her. Oh, so That's how it in, should be. Right? Yeah. Um, In 1964, something really crazy happened which i had never heard of in my life even having lived in san francisco for as long as i did um but in 1964 a small group of native americans known as the red power activists occupied the abandoned prison on alcatraz island to call attention to the mistreatment of native americans by u.s government never heard of this ever what the-
1: <laughs> that would have been cool to uh, learn about in history class. Oh. Right?
0: <laughs> Great. <laughs> um. So she was super inspired by their attempts and became active in the protest by gathering supplies, blankets, food, and water that she would send over to the people on the island. Um, but soon after the Alcatraz occupation began, she found out that her father was diagnosed with kidney disease. Which would cause Wilma to discover that she also shared the same polycystic kidney disease that her father had. And this would be basically Yuck. number one of all of the insane health related illnesses that Wilma will experience through the remainder of her life. This is one of many. Oh, honey. <laughs> so no. be ready to ride the wild ride of the Wilma health crisis. <sighs> it's brutal. Um, so she spent as much time as she could with her father before he eventually died in 1971. And then in 1972, Wilma ended up transferring to San Francisco State University, and she began to focus her classes on social welfare. Against her husband's wishes, she bought her own car, began to seek independence, and she started taking her daughters to Native American events along the West Coast.
1: Oh, hold on. on. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I have to interrupt you there. Against her husband's wishes, she bought a car? Like, really? Yeah. That's the dick you
0: picked? Like... Well, and also, I don't even recall the early to mid-70s being that gnarly about women driving. I mean, if anything, he should be thankful that he
1: wouldn't have to fucking drive her anywhere. Like, that's, that's easing up on your problems, man. I don't... Well, also, it sounds like she
0: bought the car. Yeah. So did her car. I don't know. I don't know. The patriarchy, know. man. Yeah, which we will get into more, actually, which is good you said that. We have more to come on that in this story. Oh, there's more. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes, she did that. And then, um... Shockingly, in 1974, she divorced his ass. Good. And she ended up moving to Oakland with her two daughters. And during this time, she was a busy lady. She joined the Pitt River tribe from Northern California to campaign for compensation with the Indian Claims Commission and Pacific Gas and Electric Company for the lands that were illegally stolen from the tribe during the California Gold Rush. Oh, good. She also founded the East Oakland Native American Youth Center, where she served as director, and she called on volunteers to help paint and draft educational programs to help youth learn about their heritage. And this one I might love the most She took position as a social worker for the Urban Indian Resource Center and conducted research on child abuse, neglect, foster care, and adoption of Native children. She worked on a legislation that created a law called the Indian Child Welfare Act, which made it illegal to place Native children in non-Native families because her research had found that those that were placed in non-Native families really experienced the most hardship from their new families. Wow. Um, basically That's because of discrimination. So awesome. Yeah. So she divorced that fucker Hugo, Hector. <laughs> I don't even know. Fuck his name. Who cares? And, and,
1: and there were and there was gold at the end of that rainbow. Like
0: <laughs> Yeah. So she she immediately hopped into into her, you know her life's passion, which we'll continue to see throughout the rest of her story. Um, and then in 1976, she moved back to Oklahoma with her mother and children, and she built a small house in Mankiller Flats. So soon after arriving, she began working for the government of the Cherokee Indian Nation as a tribal planner and program developer. But then one day, in on November 9th, 1979, Wilma almost lost her life in a serious car accident, When her vehicle was struck by an oncoming car that was driven by her best friend, Sherry Morris, who ended up dying in the car crash. Wilma suffered broken ribs, breaks in her left leg and ankle, and both her face and right leg were crushed. Initially, doctors thought she would not be able to walk again, but after 17 operations and plastic surgery to reconstruct her face, she was released from hospital and was able to walk with crutches. Um, Even worse, three months after the car crash, while she was still in recovery, she began to notice a loss of muscle coordination with her body. So she was like dropping things. She was unable to grip items in her hand, and her voice got like really tired after a few moments of speaking. So she went back to the doctor and basically found out that she has a neuromuscular disease known as myath. I'm sorry, myasthenia gravis. Nailed it. I, you know I rarely can pronounce things correctly. <laughs> <laughs> Um, But this disease leads basically to paralysis. So she had just almost died in a car crash that basically crushed her whole body, including her face, and now she has this disease Um, on top of her kidney problem that she already had earlier. So things aren't good. Um, She had to return to the hospital. She went through more surgeries, and she began chemotherapy, which lasted several years. So a year, a few years later in 1983, a man named Ross Swimmer, who was the principal chief of the Cherokee Nation, asked Wilma to be his deputy chief in the election. So while campaigning, she was surprised by the insane amount of criticism that she received from the public which had nothing to do with any of the positions that she was standing on politically, but had everything to do with the fact that she was a woman. She was a woman. Yep, yep, Um, yep. (laughs) uh, To the extent that she received death threats, her tires were slashed, and a billboard with her picture was lit on fire. So, like, complete and utter aggression and violence was thrown at her because a man asked her to be like his co-captain in a campaign. Nuts. I don't, It just I don't,
1: uh, I don't know. I don't get it. I just, I don't get it. But like, what is it about women that is so threatening to men? Like aren't we supposed to be the weaker sex in their eyes? Why do you have to go slash her tires if she's so weak? No. because you're threatened. You're real. Yeah.
0: Well, and then on top of everything you just said. Wilma was not only surprised because of all of those reasons, but also surprised because in traditional Cherokee society families and clans were organized through the mother's lineage. They were matriarchy, weren't they? They were. And although traditionally women had not held titled positions in Cherokee government, they had a women's council, which was influential and responsible for training the tribal chief that was a man. So in her opinion, based off of the fact that she grew up on an, like, full-blown, you know, Native American lands that her ancestors were forced to walk to from the Southeast. She was around elders that were, like, she lived that freaking lifestyle growing up, so she's, like, coming back being like, what's the problem? (laughs) Like, everything I've learned throughout my entire history from what my elders have told me is that women... Are celebrated to an extent because they are kind of the backbone of how all this operation works so like what why is my freaking cars getting like my tires getting slashed like what the fuck is happening There's so the
1: backbone of every operation that works
0: just saying yeah. so yeah weird very strange um but nevertheless ross and wilma won the election and they took office yay Um, And then in 1985, Ross was nominated to head the Bureau of Indian Affairs in Washington, D.C. And Wilma was sworn in to replace him as principal chief of the Cherokee Nation, becoming the first woman to ever be elected for the role. So massive. Um, Cheers, Wilma. Cheers to that. So as deputy chief, her focus was on education and healthcare, overseeing the construction of new schools, job training centers, and health clinics. And another one of her main duties was to preside over the tribal council, which consisted of 15 member governing body for the Cherokee Nation. So basically, there were these 15 people that oversaw the Cherokee Nation, but Wilma was now the boss of them. So (laughs) she kind of had, like, the final say as to, like, what would, I guess, get pushed through to the council to get, you know, pushed through to the actual nation. And they weren't too happy about it (laughs) at all. Hear the boss-ass bitch song. I'm a (laughs) boss-ass bitch. Bitch. Bitch.
1: Bitch.
0: (laughs) Um... So, a lot of them thought of her new authoritative role, um, they, like, considered her to be this, like, political enemy against all of them, and then others of them just didn't like her because she was a woman. So, it wasn't, it, like, she got elected into this position, and it was, like, immediately bad vibes. <laughs> it was, so. like, it was okay. horrible. But regardless of all those fucking assholes... Um, Press coverage on Wilma and her new role made her an international celebrity and it improved the perception of Native Americans throughout the country. So for instance, a couple examples, she was interviewed by the People magazine um, and in that interview, Wilma aimed to show that Native culture, sorry, she aimed to show that Native cultural traditions of cooperation and respect for the environment made them role models for the rest of society. And in another interview, she pointed out that Cherokee women had been valued members of their communities before mainstream society imposed patriarchy upon the tribe. Which Uh is basically what we're seeing with that stupid tribal council and the people that were pissed she was in a campaign. Uh Um, But within five months of becoming the chief... Her celebrity status resulted in her election that year as American Indian Woman of the Year, an honor bestowed by the Oklahoma Federation of Indian Women, and her induction into the Oklahoma Women's Hall of Fame. Yes!
1: Yes, Queen! queen.
0: Uh, Amazing. (laughs) And then in 1986, Wilma and one of her male colleagues named Charlie Soap started to develop feelings for each other, which resulted in an engagement later in the year. But to avoid any controversy, they chose to keep their relationship private until they got married. However, even Mm -hmm. after they got married, everyone went crazy and used that against Wilma and it ended up resulting in Charlie having to resign from his position. So that was just like another element that they used against Wilma. Like, yeah. oh, you're banging one of the other political guys, this and that. It's like, we literally got married. Like, <laughs> we liked each other, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah. You're so corrupt. You married the guy. <sighs>
0: yeah. So initially. Wilma's negative experiences dissuaded her from seeking re-election, but after her opponents tried to persuade her to not run, she entered the race again with her husband's support. Yeah, she persuaded voters that the tribe could cooperate with state and federal government to negotiate favorable terms to improve their opportunities. And her husband, Charlie, or Charles, or yeah, Charlie, is that even his name? I've completely forgotten now. <laughs> anyway, her husband, who is full-blown Cherokee, uh, where am I? Yeah, who was full-blown Cherokee, was instrumental in taking her message to the group and diffusing the gender issues by speaking in Cherokee with them about the traditional place of women in Cherokee society. So he basically, she, her husband had to show up speak Cherokee to the group, and say, listen, assholes, do you forget, like, what women are in Cherokee traditional society? Like, why are you treating her like this? For real? I, I love
1: that she has a man who stands by her side and supports her, but I also hate that she had to have a man to endorse her for people to... Be-
0: yeah. All of the above. Yeah. Very, very, very annoying. Um, So she ended up focusing on budget cuts by the Reagan White House, and she highlighted how reductions in funding for low-income housing, health and nutrition programs, and educational initiatives were impacting the tribe. And while she recognized that economic development was a priority, she also stressed that business development had to be balanced by addressing social problems. So, weeks before the election, Wilma was, of course, hospitalized for her kidney disease. And her opponents argued that she was medically unfit to lead the tribe. But Ah! she had also still won 45% of the votes, given her medical issue. But tribal law required that 50% of the votes needed to be had. But then it turned out that one (laughs) of her... (laughs) Was I supposed to be happy or sad? I don't know. <laughs> no,
1: happy. It okay, okay, out, okay. Well,
0: ha- I don't know. It's kind of ironic, happy and <laughs> sad. It, it turned out that one of her supporters that would have voted for her died. <laughs> and because this person died, they had an absentee ballot. And so they had to do a recount. <laughs> and within the recount, Wilma's administration won the majority and she Holy basically shit. was reelected. So good and bad, I guess. Um
1: I don't know how to feel. Like I was up that to- <laughs> you said it was a roller coaster and you meant it. It's like a roller coaster.
0: <laughs> um And there's not too much left, so I'm getting close to the end. So in November 1988, Wilma's leadership was recognized with a national award bestowed by the Independent Sector, which was an umbrella group for nonprofit organizations. The John W. Gardner Leadership Award recognized not only her community development projects, but also her administration of Cherokee Nation Industries, which had seen profits soar to over $2 million since she'd been in office like she was just killing it yeah <laughs> also yeah in her term she met with president regan to discuss native people's grievances with his administration and she was selected as one of three spokespeople out of 16 chiefs that were invited to go hang out with regan um but then of course again in 1990 her kidney disease worsened and one of her kidneys ended up failing, so her brother Don had to donate one of his kidneys, and she underwent a transplant, yet still returned to work weeks later. Oh my God! So after returning to work and during her first full administration, her government built new health clinics, created a mobile eye care clinic, and established ambulance ambulance services. They also created early education and adult education programs. And in 1999, Wilma announced her candidacy for the next election and shortly thereafter was invited to meet with other Indian leaders at the White House with President George H.W. Bush. And Bush's officials, unlike Regan's, were receptive to input from the tribal leaders, and Wilma hoped that a new era of government-to-government relationships would follow. And then following her June election, she won 83% of the votes, which is great. Good for her. And in 1992, Wilma endorsed Bill Clinton for president and was invited to take part in an economic conference in Little Rock, Arkansas, to participate in his transition team for the presidency. And thanks to her access to so many high-level officials at this point in her life, (laughs) she became coined the most influential Indian leader in the country. Damn. (laughs) Yes. Just her. Like, her, more than anybody else, was then (laughs) named that title. And... Right after that, her autobiography called *Man Killer: A Chief and Her People*, published in 1993, she has became, a book became a national bestseller, yeah. and one of my favorite women of all time, who I covered in episode six, I believe, Gloria Steinem, mm. said in a review, "Quote: As one woman's journey, *Man Killer* opens the heart." As the history of a people, it informs the mind. Together, it teaches us that as long as people like Wilma Mankiller carry the flame within them, centuries of ignorance and genocide can't extinguish the human spirit. And without surprise, Gloria and Wilma ended up best friends forever. Well, of course they are. Of course they are. Gloria even got married to her now husband or then husband i'm not sure who in a <laughs> ceremony at wilma's man killer flats and i Oklahoma. actually think it's her now husband i i listened to uh,
1: uh have you ever heard of the podcast hysteria yes yes gloria steinem was on there like two or three months ago and no i think way. she was talking about her wedding there Holy so yeah
0: uh-huh. so oh my sorry God, go so on cool. yeah but of well, course no. they're
1: best friends. They're, like, the well,
0: coolest women ever. I always get so freaking excited when my women cross paths because, like, Ooh. I covered Gloria in episode six. Today we're on episode 39 and I'm just being introduced to Wilma, who is best friends with Gloria. Like, how in the fuck? You know what I mean? Yeah. I never even heard of Wilma and I even covered Gloria. So it's, like, it's nuts when, like, these types of, like, connections happen in stories and I get literally blown off planet earth thinking like, Oh my God, my women are friends. The world is a happy place.
1: Like it's great. It's, it's like, it's like, it's what you always imagine. Like if we were all going to get in a room and party, you know, that we'd be best friends and maybe best friends and we'd all be friends together. We'd have our girl gang and it'd be awesome.
0: Yes. That's literally how it feels. <laughs> so very exciting. I, I was literally screaming when I, when Gloria appeared in this story. Um, but needless to say, Wilma received so many awards in her life. I could never like list them all off. And also I don't even want to, it would be a 10 hour long episode, but just to name a couple. So people, you know, have an idea. She became, or she was awarded the American Association of University Women's Achievement Award. She was inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame. She was inducted into the Oklahoma Hall of Fame, as well as the National Cowgirl Museum and the Hall of Fame in Fort Worth, Texas. So those are just like literally a handful of all. She was also invited by Clinton to moderate the Nation to Nation Summit, in which leaders of all 545 federally recognized tribes in the United States were assembled to discuss a variety of topics. But then back to the most depressing part of this whole story, in 1995, Wilma was diagnosed with lymphoma, and chose not to run again, largely due to her health issues. And then, like a lot of our stories entail, there's always some asshole that fucks everything up. So when Wilma left office, the population of the Cherokee Nation had increased from 68,000 to 170,000 citizens. The tribe was generating annual revenues of approximately $25 million from a variety of sources, including factories, retail stores, restaurants, and bingo operations, and she had secured federal assistance of $125 million annually to assist with education, health, housing, and employment programs. So that's what she left behind when she walked out of office. And who fucked it up? The man? What man fucked this I, up? I didn't even bother to write his name down. I oh, good. F- Fuck it. Fuck <laughs> it. The man that replaced her in office basically destroyed everything, and his administration became tied up in a constitutional crisis, and he was accused of improperly using federal funds. But as all baby back bitches do, he tried to blame it on Wilma, stating that she did not attend his inauguration— and therefore, her lack of mentoring ultimately divided the tribe and left him without experienced advisors.
1: Oh my so, god, oh my god. No, <laughs> Melissa, it's serious. We should take a moment and sympathize with this poor, mediocre man.
0: Didn't she didn't show guidance. up to support him. Yeah, like, <laughs> it's so hard for him. Oh. Yep. After everything Wilma's fought for, you know, she fucked up his, his term. By not attending his inauguration. Um, so she was actually called to testify in court on this dude. And despite her ongoing health issues, she still showed up. And she stated that the problems that occurred in, under his watch stemmed from poor advisors and his lack of experience. So, boom, adios. Like, that's that. <laughs> n- drop. N- nothing mu- much else to say. Mm-hmm. Um, so after she officially, like, stepped out of the government role, she decided to get into, well, obviously she was never going to be stopped. So she basically just went from government to anything else that she could continue spreading her word. So she began a she became a visiting professor at Dartmouth College where she taught in the Native American Studies program and after a semester she began traveling on a national lecture tour speaking on healthcare, tribal so- sovereignty, women's rights and cancer awareness and she spoke to various civic organizations, tribal gatherings, universities and women's groups. And in 1998, President Clinton awarded Wilma the Presidential Medal of Freedom, which is literally the highest civilian honor in the United States.
1: And she earned <laughs> every bit of that.
0: So that's- yes. Mm-hmm. And shortly after that happened, she had a second kidney failure. failure. She received a second transplant, this one from her niece. And as usual, she returned back to work immediately, resuming her lecture tours and simultaneously working on four books. Just <laughs> in her spare time, you know. <laughs> yeah. um, and then in 1999, Wilma was diagnosed with breast cancer. Um, she underwent a double leptichomony. She really? underwent a double lumpectomy, followed by radiation treatment. And then in 2010, a year later, her husband announced that she was terminally ill with pancreatic cancer. Oh she God. literally had every illness that she could have ever gotten in a lifetime. She survived and fought all of them. And finally, in 2010, the pancreatic cancer took over her life, and she died on uh, April 6, 2010. Um, But she died at home with family in rural Adar County, Oklahoma, and she had 1,200 people attend her memorial service at the Cherokee National Cultural Grounds um, on April 10th, and the ceremony included statements from Bill and Hillary Clinton as well as President Barack Obama. A few days after her burial, she was honored with a Congressional Resolution from the U.S. House of Representatives and was posthumously... (laughs) Yep, you got that one. It always
1: takes me a moment, too. I always want to say posthumously. I know that's not it.
0: (laughs) She was posthumously presented with the Drum Award for Lifetime Achievement by the five civilized tribes. She held 14 honorary doctorates... And she left a permanent mark on both her state and the nation through her work to build communities and stewardship of her tribe. She is an inspiration to Native and non-Native Americans and a role model for women and girls. And to end on a quote, which I always love to do, (laughs) she once said, quote, prior to my election, young Cherokee girls would never have thought that they might grow up and become chief. And that's Wilma.
1: I love Wilma. isn't that like just in, like so
0: much to take in uh, uh, Wilma's like the best oh i want I want more Wilma in my history class, man like where is her story being told? Like I don't know why I've never heard of her, and no. yeah well, for one, she's a woman,
1: and for two, she's an indigenous, so that's like two strikes against her already.
0: But, like, the amount of shit that she did, and even to the extent that Clinton and, like, every damn freaking president that existed during her lifetime had talked with her, seen her, I'm just, for some reason, I think it's strange that I've never heard of her. Maybe, like, maybe other people have, maybe people that, like, my mother's age, who were in the 70s and stuff, might know of Wilma. I would be interested to find that out, but, I mean, completely news to me, and... At one, I love the fact that she lived in the SF Bay area and I could relate to so many of those neighborhoods and, you know, things that she did there. We went to the same college. <laughs> like, I, <laughs> I mean, lady, you're practically the like, fact that I, like, I've never even heard of her at SF State. And that's like a very yeah. progressive college campus. Didn't even know Alcatraz was ever like occupied by Native Americans. Like, all of that information is so new to me, and having have lived in the Bay Area for eight years, went to the same college. You know, it's so strange to me that I've never heard any of this before. And it's yeah. just like, where has this been? And who's covering it? And where do I find it? And am I the only podcast that's talked about Wilma? Like, I just I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> like, like do it
1: just you know, seems like nuts. aside from her autobiography, which I'm putting on my TBR list, by the way, because yeah, um. Do do you know, like, if there's, like, been any, I I don't know, I'll take a Lifetime original movie about her at this point.
0: So, I can't tell you the name of it, but I believe she's been in quite a few documentaries. Okay. I don't think that there's a documentary about her in particular, but I think she's been a speaker in quite a few. And I didn't have time to look into them or watch anything before the recording, but I'm definitely going to deep dive on this now that I have more time. I love yeah. her. That's I know.
1: Love. She's the poster woman for your inspiration board. Like, you feel like you haven't accomplished enough. Like, I don't feel like doing anything today. Just look at Wilma and go, yeah? You haven't done anything today?
0: <laughs> right? Really? <laughs> right? I know. <sighs> so that's my story. Lover. I don't know. Like, I told you earlier, sometimes we guess zodiac signs. I don't know how you feel about zodiac signs, but also... If I were to guess, I would never have guessed this, so this is a tough one.
1: Okay, I'm going to full disclosure here. I want to play this game because it's fun <laughs> and I love listening to you guys hear it. I think zodiac signs are bullshit, and I don't know what each zodiac sign is. So I'm just going to put a blanket Gemini. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but I'm going to go with Gemini. <laughs> it is a
0: fantastic Educate me, guess. please. 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 <laughs> It is a fantastic guess, but no, Wilma is not a Gemini. Um, she is a Scorpio. Oh, which I wouldn't have guessed for her. However, when thinking about it more, um, I think like the main takeaways from her story and her life that would lead to Scorpio is that she's very brave and mm-hmm. she's also intimidating. Yes. Which she probably isn't intimidating, but people took her intimidating, like as an intimidating threat. Yeah, and that's kind of that's like the those backlash two, for those everything. Are two th- those are two things that Scorpios tend to have in their their personality traits. I would have never thought of her that way because. You know, I think when you read and learn about somebody, you're seeing it just from the information you're taking in. But we don't always see the way she's being perceived, and so I feel like that element's missing in her story. Where we know that people didn't like her because she was a woman and this and that, but like she also might have been fierce as fuck. And like, oh
1: no, you don't get like, that far in life with all of your health problems without being like, like someone is trembling in their like in their shoes when they come up and talk to you, like. Ugh.
0: Yeah, Yeah. so I'm kind of guessing that in the real world, she probably was a bulldog, and she was probably bossing people around, and like, you know, just dropping orders and like whatever this is the way it's gonna be and fighting her way through every single challenge that she had so people clearly saw her as a threat and intimidating and powerful and so I think those alone would signify Scorpio however I probably would have never thought of that or picked that myself
1: (laughs) it's it's so great that because I while I don't know many astrology signs I know mine and my husband is a Scorpio so at least I know that and I so I recognize it. I was like, oh, no, I know what that means. So.
0: <laughs> that's hilarious. All right. Well, that's Wilma. If you need like a pee break or anything, we can do a break. No, I'm good. How about you? You're good? I'm good.
1: All right. I'm gonna just we're we're both it. veterans
0: here in the wine drinking, so. <laughs> All right. Well, you're up.
1: All right. So you had inspirational, wonderful woman who did many great things. I have, mine is a woman, and I think she's very, very interesting. Let me just, like, put it out there. Uh, Whether or not she's a hero or a villain, I would call her an anti-hero, just depending on who you're asking, because there's so many different things written about her, and so many different viewpoints, and of course, and as I go through this biography, it was written by men, Oh, so, you know... It's That's gonna. Interesting. It's gonna have a different take. Like I'm telling you, some of the language I'm gonna be using is from Biography.com, and this is the language from Biography.com, and I literally had to go, "Not my words." Like I'm putting in parentheses, "Not my words," because it's astounding, like how people describe her, and it's just so. Uh, my woman is Matahari, and um, so Matahari was born fuck i should have really looked this up before uh her her, her, her name isn't matahari that's her stage name but she was born margarita gertruda Zeli. i Ooh. think that's how you pronounce her name but i'm just gonna call her matahari going forward um in uh in 1876 in lurevard netherlands so she's from the netherlands Um, so, in the mid-1890s, there's not really much about her childhood. I mean, she was born to, like, a homemaker, and then her father, who, like, I don't know, I guess he was a hat salesman, but he also had a bunch of failed business ventures, so he wasn't, like, very successful, but there's not really much about her growing up, but... Once she gets, uh, she gets like submitting photos and everything. That's when really that's when people really start paying attention to her because (laughs) in the mid 1890s she answers a newspaper ad uh, to be a bride for Rudolph McLeod, who was a military captain based in the West Indies. He just you know sent out a wanted ad for I need a woman, and she sent in first
0: mail order bride.
1: I don't know first, but she (laughs) was a mail order bride. (laughs) But look. She was hot, and she knew it, and like, like she came from a not successful family. she needed to get out of there so yeah. i and I don't know much about Netherlands' history, I have to say in the eight, the late nineteenth century, but I'm pretty sure it probably wasn't great. Mm-mm. I don't know, it's just the late nineteenth century, that's my guess, yes. uh, in general, so yeah, she sent out a hot picture to Mr. McLeod, and he chose her, so. Yeah, and she went to the West Indies, and so on July eight, July eleventh, sorry, eighteen ninety five, she married Rudolph McLeod. Uh, I believe she was nineteen, and he was twenty one years her senior. Oh man! Yeah. Oh, you know, that's how. But like every other marriage, I guess back in those days, (laughs) for real. Ugh. Um. they, their marriage was not a happy one. They were married for nine years. Uh, but he was... Uh, Rudolph uh, drank a lot and was very rageful. Like, I'm pretty sure there was probably some words and just my own interpretation of maybe beatings. Ooh. Again, late 19th century. 20, yeah. Pfft. You know. Uh, but in between all of the angriness and hitting, they did manage to have two kids. Uh, so one boy and one girl. Um, unfortunately, though, like, the son was poisoned in 1899 by a household worker. What? For intentionally recent. poisoned? Yeah, intentionally poisoned by a household worker. And that's all we get out of it. Like, there's no, there, like, there's no backstory about it. He He did not survive, but they just, like, yeah. I don't know. Oh, my
0: God.
1: <laughs> yeah. So... That happened, and unfortunately, he died. And after that, like you thought, her marriage was bad before, but then her, like in the early 1900s, like her marriage really started to unravel. Um, I'm I'm sure her uh, her son's death did have something to do with it, and her husband fled with her daughter um, to some place. Again, like not really sure where. And at that point, Matahari then moved to Paris, and that's kind of where like. Her career took off. Um, so since Mata Hari was... And again, not my words. Uh, she was Oriental. Oh, Quotes. Okay. She's from the Netherlands, but she came from the West Indies and she had this certain look, you know? Um, and Oriental, in quotes, was a fad in Paris. Uh, she came uh-huh. in and she had like this exotic look. So she came in to Paris, like, kind of by storm, and created, like, she was pretty much a burlesque dancer, in all intents and purposes. Like, she came in and she uh, uh, danced on stage, uh, sometimes in the nude, sometimes not, sometimes stripped, sometimes not, and she, like, created this temple dance, uh, which was drawing on cultural and religious symbolism that she picked up from the West Indies, so that made her, like, just so exotic you know <laughs> yeah she was special um so but she built herself as a hindu artist and she did show her butt so let's all take a moment to gasp <gasps> she showed her butt. But, oh my God, my God, my God. but she did always manage to keep her tits covered like that was the big thing <laughs> like butt showing but- or like hold boob coverage Like, like, if you look at pictures of her, there's actually a picture you can find online where her whole bottom half, like, completely exposed, but she does have a full beaded bra on. Like, so. Yeah, like. Boobs were just a thing that she always wanted to keep private. Everything else, go for it. Like, (laughs) like, she had a great body and she wasn't afraid to show it. And she was beautiful. So,
0: like. I'm sure no one was complaining.
1: No, no one was complaining. And. You know, during this time, she's the one who coined herself Matahari, which means "eye of the day" in 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 Indonesian dialect. So mm-hmm. it just added to her mystique a little Love bit. It. Yeah. So um, Matahari like took the Paris saloons by storm and became, like I said, a striptease dancer. This was one reporter's, uh, uh, like one reporter called her so feline. Extremely extreme Okay, let me try this again because this is so weird and disgusting, I want to give this justice. (laughs) One reporter called called her so feline, extremely feminine, majestically tragic, the thousand curves and movements of her body trembling in a thousand rhythms. Oh my god! I feel like I need a shower after reading that, but (laughs) Was that like a reporter that said that? That was a reporter. Yeah. Who went to go see one of her shows and was just so just awed by her. And she, and I mean, it was still Paris. So while, you know, early 20th century, people are still stingy. It's still Paris. It was known to being a little bit, you know, yeah, just having fun doing your thing. And people were more accepting of that. Um, so she she was very successful for a long time as like a burlesque striptease dancer, um, but after Madahari got older, you know, she she kind of lost her youth a little bit. Again, not me saying this. This is like mm-hmm. men writing her story saying she got older. She stopped getting booked for gigs. Um and so she and this is where I came in with my own editorial, and just started to say she became a sex worker because why not? she could she knew she could make money out of it, and yeah, and she was pretty good at it, so she made a lot of money, she became very famous, but other people had a lot of ideas because she you know was a prostitute or a courtesan or whatever you want to call her, you know she just yeah, she became a sex worker, she got paid to have sex. And she worked for a lot of men in the government, and especially military men.
0: Of course she did.
1: Yep. And they <laughs> loved her very much, uh, uh, as men do. Um, and, and, it, and it really didn't matter what country, as far as who she was pleasing, whether it was France, Germany, in the early 20th century. <laughs> so, like, that started to become a problem leading up to World War I you can imagine um and so as war started sweeping through europe uh matahari kind of hops between countries and was able to do so because of her holland citizenship like she just you know like her passport was like there were no boundaries therefore she could go country to country uh you know working her way through military men and government officials who were paying her for her services. And she did Mm -hmm. that because it was her work. It was her job. And uh, because of her work and she was still like dancing. Also, she took a lot of trunks with her, uh, you know, outfits and stuff. And that like raised some eyebrows, you know, hopping from country to country, hanging out with military men, lots of trunks. Uh, So I don't know. She was a woman.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Think she was Uh, like smuggling shit?
1: No, she just had costumes. Like that was it. She just had costumes, and she liked to travel, so she went places, uh-huh. and she was going from like France to Germany to Holland and Netherlands to wh- wherever she could because she could, and it and it raised suspicions. So, yeah, it uh, well, it kind of caught sus- the.
0: What were they like suspicious of? Like, did they well, think that she was smuggling, or what did they think she was up to?
1: Oh, I'll get to that because okay, it was okay. kind of kind of her and. Um, she, this whole thing kind of caught the eye of the British and French intelligence, like her country hopping and everything and her, um, her company with men. So, um, (laughs) biography.com, you were beautiful because it says (laughs) now nearing 40, plumpish, 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 Plumpish. they called her plumpish, it's like, Really? Okay. Also, she's
0: only just now nearing forty. She's only forty. When, when, according to them, did she start getting old and like unappealing?
1: Because she's a sex worker and she has some curves, so now she must be old and used. I don't know. It again. This is just like, uh, and and we'll get into like the 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 historians' debate uh, about her and like you know where she really stood and everything, but it's just, just reading how men write about her is honestly it's just sickening because yeah. you, it, it's obviously men have written this and I'm going, come on, come on. <laughs> um, so she's plumpish and her dancing days are clearly behind her. Like, so, again, not my words, but why are they wording it this way? I don't know. <laughs> um, Matahari did pick up some younger D. She, uh, she fell in love with a 21-year-old Russian captain named Vladimir de Malzov. Pick a more Russian name than that, I dare you. <laughs> um, and Malzoff was sent to the front lines, but was injured and became blind in one eye. So in order to earn some money, she became a badass and accepted an assignment as a spy for France. From, um, I'm not going to pronounce this name correctly, Georges Ladeau. George is spelled with an S, so I'm gonna I'm gonna say it with a silent S and just go with George Lado, uh, who he was George Lado was like using courtesans as spies throughout France, so he was like picking up courtesans and telling that like stationing them here, there, and everywhere to pick up some information. So he recruited Matahari to do this, and she did because why not? <laughs> like. She had the access, she had the reputation, and so she kind of she became a spy for France during World War One, and her goal was ultimately to get to German high command. So she met with a German attaché and was feeding him like little bits of gossip here and there, uh, hoping to get like some information in return, you know. But unfortunately, she never got that far. So instead. <laughs> I get ready to get your fury hats on. Uh, She was set up and was named as a German spy uh, in the communiques that were sent to German, uh, sorry, which were sent to Berlin and were encrypted by the French. So um, Germany kind of picked up that she was a spy. And so they were sending like communications to Berlin saying, Oh, this, this uh, woman over here that these men are sleeping with. Yeah. She's totes a spy. And so the France, so France was picking up these communications, translating it, and hearing spy. But they weren't like, and this is where historians are getting into debates, right, about whether she, like, they were misinterpreting it and thinking that she was actually a double agent and switched sides to the German, uh, German side, or whether they, you know, just were using her as a scapegoat later because this wasn't paying off. Uh, so, (laughs) and so that happened, they, you know, she was named as a German spy and, um, the country of France arrested Mata Hari on February 13th, 1917 and threw her into prison and she was only allowed to see her lawyer who was also a former lover as well. So, you know, she (gasps) has connections. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) she, she used her connections and she used them well. (laughs) <laughs> oh my
0: god, that is hysterical. But
1: um, but from what I've read, like I said, it was debated whether she was an actual spy or not. Like, a lot of what I'm reading, like, they say, yes, she was a spy, no, she was a, uh, she was a double agent, this or that. But a lot of what I'm reading, even through all this debate, it kind of just seems like she was a scapegoat. You know, like, yeah. France recruited her and said, hey, spy for us. And Germany kind of figured her out, and France didn't want to realize that they fucked up, so they're like, oh, well, she was a double agent after all. So, yeah, and uh, the guy who recruited her, Ladeau, like, did his very best to make sure that he had enough evidence against her, and, like, make sure the evidence was, like, super damning in her trial, that, yeah, some reports even state that he tampered with the evidence to make it seem super damning, so it's like, probably... Yeah, probably. Yeah, they just. I think he knew he fucked up, so he had to cover his ass, and she just <laughs> unfortunately was the easiest scapegoat because she was a woman. Uh, I'm sorry, a, a woman of um l- um what's what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, less desirable virtue. So oh, she was like, yes. Yes, yeah, easy to pin <laughs> shit on.
0: Right. Well, it's. I think also it's a a, a, a type of person that. You know, if you were to attack them or make accusations when other people evaluate the person, they're like, Oh, well, one, you're a woman, two, you are a sex worker, and three, you're what are they Oriental? Yeah.
1: <laughs> Even though she's from the Netherlands, yeah. But she it's... has uh she has a, a foreign name that she coined herself, so it's just the cards were not stacked in her favor no, they at all. Boring. Um So ultimately, because uh, a German officer paid her for sex, which was, don't forget, her job (laughs) as a spy, Um, (laughs) it it was apparently seen as the smoking gun for some reason in her trial. Um, And the two people who were called to testify on her behalf were never called, and one of them was her maid, who acted as an intermediary between the payments between her and that German soldier. So... Ultimately, everybody knew that she was kind of innocent, uh, but they weren't willing to call any witnesses to let that be so. Um, She had terrible morals because she was a sex worker and must be punished for it. So, the military tribunal took. Do you want to guess how long it took them to figure out whether she was guilty or not? Just just take a guess, Like,
0: like throw out a number. Two and a half minutes. Oh,
1: no. It was 45 minutes. They did give her at least 45 minutes. Okay, okay. Before they found her guilty. Um, uh, but unfortunately, Mata Hari was executed by Firing Squad on what? October 15th, 20, uh, not 2017. I wrote down the, uh, she the time date. She time-traveled. Yes. I wrote down the date 10, 15, and I'm reading this as 2017. no. October fifteenth, nineteen seventeen. Um, but she did go out in style because she was Mata Hari after all. She dressed in a blue coat and accented with a tricorner hat. This is all on the record. And when she went out, she blew uh, the French soldier soldiers who were executing her a farewell kiss. Oh and
0: my God! Style until the end, like. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, many questions. <laughs> yes. So her, fa- or like her family, I mean, I guess just her husband and her daughter just up and vanished, like never yeah, really seen like, them again? Yeah, like, I mean,
1: there wasn't a lot of information on I'm sure if you dig deep enough, like, yeah, yeah, but yeah. at that point after, like, her son died and her husband left her, like, her story went one way and oh her husband God. went another
0: and... Well, I can't help but wonder if, like... <laughs> Her husband fails out with the daughter, and then like years down the line is like, well, there's mom in the news, yeah, out there right. <laughs> spying around, getting executed, like Su- such your mother
1: thing to do. Oh my god, <laughs> like,
0: such an extreme like you know, change of events that would have occurred for him to be like, wow, what in the world happened? Um, but also, her story, except for the execution part, is very much similar to Josephine Baker. Yes, yes, it um, is. Uh-huh. which I would just kept feeling like so many Josephine Baker vibes in that whole thing, because uh, Josephine Baker was, you know, a performer. I'm pretty sure she did a lot of scandalous types of performances on stage as well. I don't in Paris, no was, less. Like that in was Paris her as well. headquarters as well. Yeah, yeah. I don't think she was a sex worker. I mean, who no, knows, well, really. probably not.
1: But Matahari was a well-known, yeah, yeah. Sex worker. But
0: didn't I mean Josephine Baker also got like kind of caught up in a bunch of spy activities and, mm-hmm. um, you know, it makes me wonder that like. Just even knowing the Josephine Baker story, the chances of Mata having been also tied up in similar types of activities isn't that shocking. Like, given the time period, given, you know, the location, the same style of work, like... It probably, that probably really happened. Like, she probably did kind of, especially if she had kind of gone from a place of, like, the way her life led, where, you know, she was left by her husband and whatever, and she decided to start dancing, and then it led into sex work. Like, I I think if you were presented with this opportunity of, like, hey, if you do a little spy here and there, and this is about the money you're gonna get, like, you probably don't say no. I mean, it's no. like oh, it's like I'm sleeping with a bunch of disgusting old men or I could go do this, like, you know, really exciting, action-packed, you know, investigative work on the side. <laughs> like, I wouldn't be surprised if that was a real thing. Um, that's so horrible that she was executed. Yeah, yeah. And and what's, like, and, and and, like,
1: it's one thing that she was executed. That's bad enough. But, like, just how history has treated her, over the years, like the name Matahari has actually become synonymous with like like if you're using the term like oh you're such a you're such a spy but you're also a slut like you're a siren spy that yeah. coaxes the secrets out of men you're Matahari and it's like oh come on like you know what? It's she so wasn't the first and she won't be she wasn't the last and she just happened to be the one that was easy enough to pin shit on when men fucked up. Any woman who uses her sexual wiles uh, because men are weak and think with their penises and like and might have spilled some of your secrets oh she 's a matahari it 's her <laughs> fault because. He has a dick, and he has, and he's weak. So <laughs> and
0: he couldn't control himself. Mm-hmm. He, his dick and his urgences couldn't. Couldn't he? Could oh, not. Oh, it was so himself. hard. It's her fault. He just was so out of control. The minute he made eye contact, fuck her. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: But there are so many women. You know, like Wilma for one, and also like um, this this woman Mata Matahari, and then uh, Grace O'Malley is another woman that is just like. This would be this would be a great woman to have like a mini series or like a really interesting movie or whatever, and you're, you like look through their information. and I think Mata Hari has like an opera written about her. She definitely has an old movie, a, an old silent film with Gre- uh, Greta Garbo.
0: Nice. I think,
1: yeah. So she does have an old film, and then there was a Russian mini series that is on Amazon Prime. Haven't watched it yet, but that's it. Like. There's not a lot. I'm like, this is such an interesting story. Why aren't you selling the
0: shit for money, at least? Like, get the name out there. I don't know. So how did you come about to learn of Mata Hari?
1: I don't... That's a good question. I really don't... I might have just, like, passed by her, like, maybe in reading or, like, um probably in one of those lists of interesting women throughout history and was like briefly passed by. I go, oh, who's Mata Hari? And then went to her Wikipedia yeah. page and I'm like, holy shit, she's awesome. Like <laughs> this woman is so cool. And like, and I, again, trying to find like, I want a TV show. I want a book. I, like, even if it's historical fiction, give it to me. I'll read it. Yeah. Nothing. Yeah. Nothing. And I'm like, she's so interesting though.
0: Cool. You know, it, it, the, you know another interesting thing is to wonder, like, the amount of women similar to Josephine Baker or Mata Hari that were maybe taken advantage of during this time period and u- used for similar purposes. Like, I mean, we, the reporting on who all those women are, we would never even see. And, like, I yep. it makes me wonder, like, how many women were there that were sort of used in this time period as these, you know communication passers and note note you know whatever yeah. they did spies like it's nuts
1: this inspires me i might have to do some <laughs> research like if no one has written like a doctor uh, a doctorate yet or some sort of paper about women spies throughout the years. Then I feel like this is very lacking, and that's a paper I would read and research. And maybe I should get a PhD right? in history. I don't know. Like that's gonna be my doc- that's gonna be my doctoral thesis. Like I will find that paper if it does exist, or that book.
0: And- <laughs> yeah. I bet just- you. I mean, it has to. It absolutely has to. Um, it's so fascinating. Uh, love that you covered her. <laughs> yeah. She, and she's also... very interesting and doesn't get enough attention.
1: And oh, um, I, just one of those like kind of flashbacks um, to where you never noticed that she was in your purview before. Um, mm. Did you ever watch Harriet the Spy growing up? I did. Okay. So Harriet actually goes out. You remember the night when Gully and her boyfriend take Harriet out and they go to a, like they go out and they go to eat and then they go to a movie? And then she comes home, and then so. Gully gets fired and shit, and there's that uh-huh. whole blow up. Well, the movie they went and actually saw was um, was Mata Hari, that old like film, and like they actually had scenes from it where you could see the, you know, uh, yeah. And it was like, oh, there it is. Like it, it was like one of those things where after I realized Mata Hari was a real life person, and then I rewatched Harry at the Spy for the podcast, um, and I was like, Mata Hari?
0: Oh my God, that Mata Hari! So weird. Why was yeah. *Harriet the Spy* featuring Mata Hari? <laughs> well, it's just she just went just to the that spy movie, spy? And like.
1: <laughs> yes, I probably yeah. That's that probably was on purpose, <laughs> like a directorial choice that *The Harriet the Spy* went to go see an old film starring a very famous spy from World How War One. Crazy. So,
0: mm-hmm. Oh my God. <laughs>
1: So now that you know her name, you're probably going to have that that thing where you're going to hear about, like, you're going to see and hear about her more than you ever had Mm. in your life, because you know the name now, and it's like, wait, huh? Huh?
0: Do you happen to have, like, any idea of maybe the age range she was in when she was executed? I mean, obviously over 40. We've got that figured out.
1: (laughs) Yes. She was 40 and plumpish. Plump, so. She was very plump and old when she died. Don't forget that because <laughs> women expire like curdle melt, like curdles milk. Um, so she was born in 1876. So let's try to do maths here. I threw my phone away because I didn't want to be distracted by it. 1876, and she died in 1917. So let me find a calculator. So she was 41 years old.
0: Oh wow. Yeah, Damn. so so she only survived one extra year of the last time she was described as old and plump. Yeah, they got rid of her. Yep. Oh my god, how crazy!
1: So Melissa, what do you think? What do you think, uh, Matahari's zodiac sign is?
0: Oh man, uh-huh. I have been thinking about it.
1: Now, and... if you want a hint, by the way, and this is just a fun fact, Matahari and I have the same birthday. So that was another reason, like, I I hey. saw her and I was like, we have the same birthday. How cool.
0: The so. exact same to date and everything? Wow. Yeah. Okay. So I have a couple thoughts. So mm-hmm. one, I think she's a fire sign, which if you don't know, that I is know. Sagittarius, Leo, or Aries. Okay. Am I right in any of those? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, uh-huh. my official first guess is that she's an Aries.
1: No? No. Nope. God. Leo, she likes that? to be on she's... the stage. Well, she's a Leo, then. Yeah, she's yeah. a Leo.
0: <laughs> that's it. And <laughs> that's, that's it. I don't yep. know why I didn't think of that. Well, so, the only reason why I thought of Aries... Um, is because I feel like, especially in career, Aries have a really great tendency of networking. They're oh, like yeah. really good at like knowing who to ally with to like move up in the world. Mm-hmm. And she kind of seemed like, with the path she took, you know, that she was kind of like playing that field a little bit and like, this is how, this is who I'm going to connect with. These is, you know, blah, blah, blah. But, um, well, yeah, I mean, for sure. Anybody on a stage. Usually Leo. (laughs) Speaking of which.
1: (laughs) On my podcast, might I add also, I'm kind of a shitty Leo. Um, This is the most you're going to get out of me for, like, any public speaking. Now, granted, I was a theater major in college, but that's, like, neither here nor there. Um, I went to, I was a theater major because I wanted to go into marketing in theater. Like, I never wanted to be on stage. It was always the -the behind-the-scenes shit that I loved, so... Oh, take that as you will.
0: <laughs> but well, so what's her actual birthday and yours?
1: Oh, uh, actual birthday is August seventh. So Matahari, Charlize Theron, and I have the same birthday. <laughs>
0: nice. That's a great. That's a great group. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: I, th- I think we could go have wine together, the three of us, <laughs> and we'd have a great time. Right.
0: Absolutely. Speaking Thank- of wine, are you drinking out of, like, a steel chalice? Like, yes.
1: The chalice with the palace this? was the brew that is true.
0: Uh, oh my god.
1: This is from, this was, a, I think, a Christmas gift from my sister-in-law, because, you know, sometimes spills happen. You don't want to break your glass. <laughs> That's the wine's a already gone.
0: wine glass. <laughs> like, like, that thing means business. Like, that looks like it should be in Game of Thrones or something. Mm-hmm. Love it. No risk
1: of breaking that. That's... Hell no. Uh
0: uh-uh. uh. <laughs> oh, well, that was fucking fantastic. Another great episode under the belt. Also, I'm like kind of having like a strange freak out that my next episode's number 40, which seems nuts.
1: Hey, don't forget, <laughs> 40 was when Matahari became plumpish and old. <laughs> you are now by that standards, plumpish and old.
0: <laughs> oh no, I'm officially in the plumpish and old category next episode. Well, at least you got in right before that happened. <laughs> Thank God. Oh, my God. Hilarious. Well, I'm very excited. To learn about Mata, she's fucking awesome. she definitely fits in with the entire yeah, uh, I figured list she of would. that we've covered lover um so I guess to close out, we have any women of the week, anybody in particular you you have in mind?
1: Oh yes, let me, hold on, let me get ready for this uh soapbox that I'm going to stand up on because uh i i uh we talked about the covid nineteen and that actually veers into the woman I want to talk about this week because. You know, as I stated before, I, I live in Detroit, or Detroit area, and we're, we're pretty bad right now when it comes to COVID-19. And, um, I don't know about you, Melissa, but I'm just going to take a wild guess and say that you're not a fan of our president. I don't know. That's <laughs> just like, <laughs> you seem like the type of person who's smart and has a, a head on her shoulders and um, not, not a
0: fan of the Trump.
1: No, he's an asshole. You nailed uh, it. You but, nailed it. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, so a lot of these states, you know, have to have they ha- they have to rely on their governors to fight for them and like get all the, the stuff that they need. And um, and our governor, Gretchen Whitmer, has been doing just that. She has been amazing and like wonderful. And she actually pissed off Trump so much that in tweets and in press conferences, he won't even refer to her by name. He just calls her that woman from Michigan. Uh, because what? she has been, yes, she she has been kind of kicking his ass as far as like going, no, you're a dumbass. We need this, this, and this, and you're not doing anything. So he's like, that woman from Michigan is just being nasty, and she actually has taken this and has got a shirt that says that woman from Michigan has and has appeared on the Daily Show with it and does press conference briefings with it, and it's like pretty much her middle finger uh, oh. to President Trump. So, um, I, so she is my woman of the week. She is doing a fantastic job in this crisis. And she's also giving the middle finger to the douche nozzle uh, <laughs> over there on the East Coast in D.C. So I want to salute her and oh, thank her man. for that.
0: That's incredible. You know, it's I'm. I don't know of the Michigan governor at all. (laughs) Yeah, I have no idea who that is and I've not heard about this, but that's incredible. Um, Love it. I'm like, where can we find the (laughs) t-shirts? Right, that woman from Michigan. Funny that you say that though, because my woman of the week also has been heavily affected by COVID-19. Tell me, tell me, tell me. And... It's one of those things where I feel like this pandemic and what we're all experiencing it, it's like I almost feel uncomfortable on like what can I complain about because you don't want to come off as like this privileged american asshole who's like bitter that they can't go drink at a bar today. You know? Okay, it's okay, like...
1: let me let me time out for you right now because <laughs> look You might, we both might be privileged American assholes who are, uh, mourning that, but still we had fucking plans and it's okay to mourn your plans. Like you had, like, you had ideas, you had stuff saved up, you had time, you're allowed to be upset that circumstances had changed. Like, just so you know.
0: I think that's what I'm like this week starting to really think about a lot is like, what Mm -hmm. am I allowed to be grieving? Or what is anybody really allowed to be grieving? Um, And so that's what comes into my Woman of the Week is I was flying into Las Vegas, Nevada, checking into my hotel with one of my best friends, going to Magic Mike, Thunder Down Under, watching men dance on stages and thongs. Was it good? Because I was celebrating. (laughs) Fantastic. Oh, great. One of my best friends' bachelorette parties who was about to get married. Uh Uh-huh. Literally one week and like two days later, returning from that trip, everybody was on lockdown. The wedding was canceled. Her sister, who's the maid of honor, was laid off from her job. Everything was fucked. (laughs) Oh no. It's one of those things where it's like... A wedding's a wedding, it can be postponed, it can happen at another time. At the same time, you know, this is somebody I've been close friends with for over ten years. I've watched her grow up, I've lived through all her relationships with her. I know her fiancé. It's been something we've been looking forward to for over a year. All of our best friends were going to get together, celebrate this beautiful day with friends and family. It was supposed to happen, um, a couple weeks ago. Yeah! (laughs) So... She, Nikki Janice, is my woman of the week today because not only did her wedding get canceled, which sucks, but she handled it so incredibly well that, like, honestly, that's what makes her women of the week. Like, she had so much class and dignity and, you know, self-containment. When having to announce the cancellation and the postponement and, like, every conversation she, she had about it was optimistic and it's okay, you know, things happen, we're okay, we're gonna move forward. You know, she she just really, like, managed the situation so well and remained so positive through the absolute heartbreak that I could imagine that would occur for the one time of your life that's supposed to be the best time of your life to like solidify this whole future that evolves into a million things of kids and uh, you know everything, to have to you know get to that day and literally to, like a week and a half before it, call it quits. <laughs> yeah, oh my <laughs> god, nuts. bless her, it's it not. <laughs> And, you know, it's not just that her wedding got canceled, that she's Woman of the Week. It's the way that she handled it. And that's what's what the biggest takeaway for me is that, you know, I really... Ha- My everyday life has changed, without a doubt. But that's such a significant part of a woman's life, really a man's life as well, anybody's life that's getting married. And just... She handled it with such grace and class, and that's what makes me just love her even more for the person that she is. And also just one of the millions of people that has unfortunately had an incredible day destroyed because of this pandemic. So just shout out to her and her sister, Allie, who I love them both, and her family.
1: (laughs) I'm shouting out to them, too. All of it. It's just such a tragedy. Look, she doesn't know me, but can you give her an air hug for me (laughs) and let her know that I yes i'm I won't. sorry i won't. she listens she'll hear okay Mickey, right. we love I'm so you sorry <laughs> oh so sorry Yeah, oh. pretty
0: bad <sighs> but life will life will move forward eventually it will
1: one day we're in this it'll happen in the we're meantime in though i do have to say sure i'm having <laughs> nightmares and stuff but I am read. I am finishing two books a week, so damn. Yeah, like I'm getting some reading done. I'm oh, also yeah. flying through my Parks and Rec marathon. Oh fuck yes! Honestly, guys, uh, if you're really feeling low, pick up a Mike Sure show. Like that is just going to make you feel Parks and Rec, the Good Place, Brooklyn oh, Nine Nine. So oh my god, it, it really, it really does make you feel bad. I promise you. Like it has been. There were a couple of days that were really bad, but Parks and Rec has been keeping me on so sanity's point. So It's
0: so good. Also, yeah. it's not it's I don't think it's the same person, but have you seen shrill yet on Hulu?
1: I do love shrill. Yes. Oh, loved
0: it. Love it. Good show too. Made me mm-hmm. smile. Brought lots of joy to my life. And that's what we need. Oh. We need joy. We do. Um, that wraps it up for episode 39, and officially, the Sisterhood of the Bottomless Mimosas first episode with another real podcaster. We have, you have branched out. Look at you, branching to all the places. Branching, we're making moves, it almost feels, like, real, you know? (laughs) It's like, oh my god, I'm not just alone with my best friend, like, talking to each other about random shit, like, It's like there's another human being in the world that also likes to podcast that's here and doing it with me. (laughs)
1: Listens to it, loves it, rakes leaves to it, makes her feel happy. (laughs) That's...
0: It just, like, elevates this, like, idea of what I'm doing to another level, and it's very meaningful, and it makes me, like, more inspired, and it's very exciting. I'm so happy you were the first, and, like, thank you for giving this to me. It's fucking great. <laughs> sure. Thanks. Thanks for having me, because this is fun. I loved it. <laughs> thank you. And thank you for all of our listeners for still being here 39 episodes later. And um, stay safe out there, and we will catch you next episode. Bye. Bye.